Well, good morning, everyone, and welcome to another Sunday. I am excited to be opening the Word of God with you. My name is Rob Wheeler. I'm the senior pastor here of Osterville Baptist Church. And we're going to be doing a little pivot for the remainder of the summer. We're going to be getting out of the Gospel of Luke and beginning a series called The Stories of Grace. Now, as I was looking at this series, I was thinking about a lot of things, but one thing in particular that was coming to mind was the idea that Christianity is unique in many ways. It's very relevant to your life, to my life. Gordon MacDonald brings it into laser-like focus with these words. He says, the world can offer almost anything as well as or better than the church. You need not be a Christian to build houses, feed the hungry, or heal the sick. There's only one thing the world cannot do. It cannot offer grace. Now, grace is such a key part of the Christian faith. What is it? Well, I could define the word grace for you, or I could show you what grace looks like. Which is better? Let me put it in these terms. Imagine that we were heading out for an adventure into the Amazonian jungle, and I was serving as your safari guide. Which would you prefer? Would you prefer that we sat at the edge of the jungle and then I went on for two hours and lectured to you about all of the things that are inside of the jungle? Or would you rather that we went inside of the jungle, looked at the various plants and animals, and then paused to talk about how diverse all of these things are? I think I know what you would choose. You would want to go into the jungle. That's why I'm choosing to focus upon the stories of grace in the Bible instead of spending several sermons defining to you and for you what grace is. Now, to borrow E.B. White's comment about humor, grace can be dissected as a frog, but the thing dies in the process, and the innards are discouraging to any but the pure scientific mind. So we're going to pick up this series on stories of grace with one of my favorite stories in all of the Bible, the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. Now, normally, I would look at Joseph's story as a capstone to a series like this, but I want to begin with the story of Joseph because I think that it really closely parallels with what we're experiencing right now. Let me frame the story of Joseph to you with a strange phenomenon that happened in history. The year 1816 is known as the year without a summer. It was the year that Mount Tabor exploded as a volcano in the country of Indonesia. And it let out a dust plume, which of course changed weather patterns. It reduced solar radiation It caused widespread failure of crops and unprecedented cold in the world. In fact, for European history, uh, it really defined part of that history. And this 1816 event came at the tail end of a larger historical phenomenon called the Little Ice Age, which was a period of about 300 years of protracted cold. Now, Think about that in terms of life. 
You know, life as we know it has various difficult seasons. There are moments in life that are like a blizzard. You know what we do with a blizzard. We hunker down a little bit. We put on a roaring fire. Maybe we lose power for a couple of days. But the normal expectation with a blizzard is that this is going to end, and then we're going to leave the house and go back to normal life. And that's like those moments in life when crisis strikes, but then life as it normally was resumes again. Sometimes life goes into a season of winter, which is more of an extended season, a couple of months. Uh, It may begin with a blizzard, but then it moves into this longer season of time. And that could be, for example, maybe you go through a job transition and you're uncertain about what the future holds. Or or maybe it's a, a lengthy period in your household where you're dealing with conflict in your marriage or something like that. And then with some counseling and some help, again, life goes back to normal. But what happens when there's an event that occurs that is forever life-altering? You know, like that little ice age which lasted for 300 years for those people in Europe. There's a a pre-event life, and then there's a post-event life, and there's no going back to the pre Now, Joseph's life is like this. His little ice age began with a snowball that became an avalanche. If you know anything about Joseph's story, Joseph grew up in a pretty dysfunctional household. A lot of problems. His father Jacob would play favorites, and he had particularly selected Joseph as his favorite son. He gave him a coat just so that all of the other sons knew that he was the privileged son. And all of the other sons, noticing that Joseph was the favorite son, didn't take kindly to that. Genesis 37.4 says that they hated him, and they couldn't say anything peaceful to him. Now, Joseph um, capitalized upon this, and that really led into more dysfunction. You know how homes are. Every home has its problems. There's hurtful things that are sad. There's relational breakdowns. But we tend to work through those things. There tends to be resolution. But what happens when things get so dysfunctional that two sides can no longer talk to one another? And that's what's happening in Joseph's life. As he flaunts his privilege, Genesis says his brothers hate him even more. And a seed of bitterness is growing in their hearts. Until one day, Jacob decides to send his son Joseph to check up on his brothers who are off watching his flocks. He would tend to do this. He'd send Joseph along and then Joseph would come back. And earlier in the story, it tells us that Joseph came back with a bad report, which again only intensifies the the hatred in the situation. Now, his brothers see Joseph coming from far off, and an impulsive plot emerges. They begin with a murderous intention. Reuben comes in, one of the brothers, and he he talks them off of that path. But then the fourth brother, Judah, asks them to commit to something that may have been even worse than murder. You see, he suggests that they should commit Joseph to the living death of slavery. 
And this is where his little ice age begins. Now remember, this is a life-altering event. It forever changes the trajectory of your life, the course of your life. So for Joseph, he's never going to go back and live in the tents of Canaan with his family ever again. For the next 13 years of his life, he will go through slavery. And as he's doing that backbreaking work, he works his way up through the ranks to a position of prominence. And then he's accused falsely. He's thrown into prison. He spends the next so many years of his life in prison. He helps a guy get out of prison and then the guy forgets all about him. Now, these are the type of life circumstances when you think about it that for most people breaks them, but for some people makes them. I want you to think about your own life for a moment in the context of these little ice ages. Some of you know exactly what I'm talking about. You've experienced something in your life that has forever changed your life. Maybe it's a marriage relationship that fell apart And you had to learn to live with a new normal after a divorce, Uh, you know, shared custody of kids, uh, living with the hurt and wound of just deep pain as a relationship that you really valued and cherished fell apart. And then the disorientation of trying to find a new normal, uh, fear about finding love again in your life. For some of you, you've lost a loved one and it just changed everything whether it was a spouse or a friend who was like a sibling to you or one of the worst losses that anyone could endure a child. You, you get what I'm talking about here. You understand the reality that, that a long winter descends upon a life and it feels like spring is not going to come again. There isn't a new normal and you just have to learn to live with the new normal. We're even asking the question about this right now with regard to this COVID-19 pandemic. You know, is this going to bring about a little ice age into the world in general? Are things not going to go back to normal again? Is is life as we know it heading in a new direction and we're just going to have to get accustomed to whatever that new is, quite possibly? And what happens when moments like this come into our world? Well, we begin to ask big God questions. We begin to ask questions like, where is God right now? Do you think Joseph asked that question while he was in prison? Probably. We begin to ask the question, what is God getting at in this situation? What is he doing in this situation? How could this situation possibly lead to a good outcome? In fact, as you think about those questions, as you ponder them, I want you to move to the next part of the story with me. Now, it's interesting, as you look at Joseph's life and you look at life in general, you see that God uses life-altering events and the pain and suffering that those events bring to teach us about the sufficiency of his grace. In the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul shared of his own little ice age. If you know anything about Paul's story, he suffered many hardships in his life, but there was one particular pain that he dealt with that almost brought him to his knees. He tells us in the book of 2 Corinthians that he he called it a, a thorn in the flesh, and he explained that it was a messenger from Satan. 
And a lot of Bible students have asked the question, what does he mean by a thorn in the flesh, a messenger from Satan? And there's been some, some good thoughts and answers around that. But I think the safest way to answer that question is we just don't know exactly what Paul was dealing with. Now, how do we tend to pray when we are experiencing tremendous difficulty, life-altering events, and suffering? I think the normal type of prayer is, can I go back to normal again? You know, if you're dealing with pain right now, for example, the prayer would be, can I go back to the pre-pain life? If, if it's a relationship that's been destroyed or is in serious dysfunction, can I go back to how the relationship was? Maybe it's a child who has uh, made some really poor decisions in your life, and so you're praying for that child, and you're like, I want my old child back. Paul prayed this way. It tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 that three different times I begged the Lord to take away this pain. And you know how Paul or God responded to Paul's little ice age? The Bible says that each time he prayed this way, God said, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. And now we come back to Joseph's story. And we see something incredible. That sometimes God doesn't answer those prayers because God's grace is at work. God is reinventing a life. There were two great skills that Joseph possessed. One skill was the the gift of administration. Another gift or skill that he had was dream interpretation. Now, think about this. Had Joseph remained in Canaan, he would have always been in a place where those skills would have been greatly underutilized. Yeah, he would have managed his father's flocks and maybe been the superior brother in his family, but he would never have soared to the heights that God intended for him to soar. However, in making a transition down to the land of Egypt, Joseph is now perfectly positioned to use those gifts to the glory of God. And you see that reinvention take place in Genesis 41. Pharaoh wakes up from two disturbing dreams, and he searches through all of the land, looking for a wise person who could tell him the meaning of these dreams. It turns out that Pharaoh has in his court a cupbearer who remembers a guy in prison named Joseph, who has just this unique skill. And so Joseph comes forward. He interprets the dreams because he has a relationship with the living God. And not only is he able to use that skill, but he's also able to use his administrative gifts and tell Pharaoh just how to attack this problem of a famine that the dreams are foretelling. So he uses these two incredible gifts. In Genesis 41, 57 explains, all the earth comes. Now think about it like this. Had Joseph never gone through the little ice age, the entire world would have greatly suffered. But by his incredible grace, by God's ability to transform situations and produce even better outcomes out of immense tragedy, he turns Joseph's suffering into a great plan of salvation. It's just incredible when you look at the story. Now, this is an important lesson that we need to learn because when you 
come to terms with this reality, when you come to terms with who God is, you have to acknowledge and admit in yourself that, that God's agenda isn't always my agenda. His ways are not always my ways. If you are going through a little ice age, I know if you are like me, I want to avoid these little ice age moments at all costs. No one ever raises their hand and says, yes, God, please send a life-altering event my way. I would like one of those right now. No. If anything, we avoid them like the plague. But why do these come? Well, when you step back and look at the big picture, you can see that God is directing our lives. Think of it like this. Think of God's plan directing your life like a river directing you while you're riding in a canoe. Now, there's two ways to go about that journey. One way you can go about that journey is you can entrust yourself to God's grace. You can allow his current to direct your life. Or you can kick and splash and attempt to change the direction of the river. But here's what I've found in life. Trust me on this one. No matter how hard you kick and splash, you never change the direction of the river. So, if you think of God's will in this way, how might that change our thinking? In one way, you, you begin to realize, and this is actually a healing thought, that you were never in control in the first place. It's really hard to be in control. In little Ice Age moments, they teach us very clearly that we never were in control. Yeah, we had the ability to steer our canoe, and yeah, sometimes we tried to row against the current, but ultimately, as we look at the big picture, we realize that God's in control and that he's directing our life. And so then it's our job to learn how to surrender to the plan to surrender to the current or the direction in which God is moving our life. And how do I learn to surrender? Well, the only way I'm going to learn to surrender is if I learn to trust God. And I'm only going to trust him if I believe that his ultimate plan for my life is gracious. Think of it like this. If, why do we struggle? Because we're not exactly sure where this river is taking us. Some of us think that it might end up in a big waterfall or something like that. So, so how can I know what God's overall comprehensive plan for my life is? Well, I have to look at the scriptures. In Romans 8, 28, tells us about where the river is heading. It says, and we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. That's God's grace operating in your life. No matter what happens to you along the way, you can know with certainty that the current of God's will is taking you toward an eternally good destination. Now, you ask the question, will there be rocks along the way? Of course there will be rocks along the way. Uh, Are there going to be moments where I hit rapids and I begin to question the final destination? Of course, that happens to many Christians. But I can keep coming back to who God is. And I can keep looking at his promises, and I can know that God intends good things, comprehensive good things for my life. Think about his character. He describes it in Exodus 34, 6. He says, I am Yahweh, the Lord, the God of compassion and mercy. 
I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. Or what of his promise? One of his most beautiful promises is Jeremiah twenty nine eleven. For I know the plans I have for you. There are plans for good and not for disaster to give you a future and a hope. A friend, here's one thing, though, that you really have to listen to when you think about God's overall plan for your life. This is essential. There is a fork in the great river of God's will. Our final destination hinges upon our decision of whether or not we trust Christ. Some of us are trying to do life, trying to ride the current without trusting Christ. And that branch of the river heads to a waterfall. That does lead to destruction. But when you put your faith in Christ, the Bible says that Christ graciously brings you over to the branch of the river where God's overall purpose for your life is leading to eternal reward, joy, happiness, and purpose. So how do you get to that branch of the river? Well, Scripture says you do that by putting your faith in Jesus. And how do you do that? Well, let me help you by telling you just three simple steps you could take right now even to trust Christ. The first is just simply acknowledging that you are not God and coming to terms with the reality that you could never earn God's forgiveness. Uh, Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard. And so I need an intervention in my life. I need a Savior to get me over to that other branch of the river. And Scripture tells us, secondly, that when you believe in Jesus, you believe that he's God, you believe that he died on the cross for your sins, that he's risen from the dead— then you'll be saved. He's the only way. He said himself in John 14, 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Thirdly, in prayer, you turn your life over to Jesus. Because some of us get stuck in the place where we say, oh, that, that's a great message, and I'm, I'm okay with that. But we never actually make a decision to trust Jesus. So friend, that's how you Get to that branch of the river that's directing your life towards God's good purposes. And what you find is when you trust your life to the current of God's plan, that God's gracious power goes to work in your life. He comes into your world and turns your tragedies into victories. He also comes into your world and he takes what is broken in you and he changes you in the process. Now, what would that look like? Well, in an attempt to talk about why God brings these little ice ages into our world, C.S. Lewis was putting language to the pain that we experience in his book, The Problem of Pain. He shared this thought. He says, we can ignore even pleasure, but pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So why does God disrupt our lives? Why put us through a pandemic like this, turn the world upside down? Why do you experience your own little ice ages? You have to understand what God's big purpose is for your life. God is much more concerned about your character than he is about your comfort. 
He, he cares much more about who you are than necessarily always how you are doing. Because God's big goal for your life is to make you become the special limited edition version of Jesus that you were always meant to be. And so if C.S. Lewis is right, and I believe that he is, that means that God uses pain to change you for the better. So now we come back to Paul's story, because this is what Paul learned. And I'm going to read to you now from the message paraphrase. As Paul thinks about that thorn in the flesh and what God was doing through it. He says, once I heard about God's grace, and I heard that God would not bring my life back to normal, I was glad to let it happen. I quit focusing on the handicap and began appreciating the gift. It was a case of Christ's strength moving in on my weakness. Now I take my limitations in stride and with good cheer, and so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. I'll take that into Joseph's story. You see, that little Ice Age fundamentally changed that spoiled brat kid who was all too ready to rub his privilege in his brother's face. While his sins did not merit the betrayal that he had received, his ego wasn't helping the situation at all. And it was only going through this that Joseph could truly become the leader that his brothers needed. They didn't need a leader that dominated over them or felt superior to them. They needed a leader who was gracious and and merciful and forgiving and humble. And we see in Genesis 50 that by God's grace, Joseph is transformed in just that, that sort of leader. Now we pick up this story. Jacob has just died. Joseph's brothers are terrified. Why? Well, they live in a world of retribution, and this world of retribution is the type of world when someone wrongs you, you don't just get back, you get back tenfold. So you think of it like this, if someone steals from you, you kill them. If you have a position of power which you can leverage over someone and they have wronged you, you get back in every single way possible. And in their mind, the only reason that Joseph was being good to them over the years was because he just wanted to make his father happy, but daddy's out of the way now. What do you think Joseph's going to do? And so in order to mollify Joseph, they send a messenger. Genesis 50 verse 17 tells us about this. They say, your father gave this command before he died. Please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. Now, we all know the problem with revenge and vengeance, right? I mean, it creates a cycle of violence that never stops. If Joseph kills his brothers, then maybe one of their sons grows up and kills either him or one of his sons, because vengeance only leads to more vengeance. But how do you forgive something like this? I mean, how do you forgive the people who robbed you of a great portion of your life, who put you in prison for 13 years and you're suffering the abuse of prison where you have 20 years or more of your life where you don't get to see your father. And we know all the things that Joseph endured, whether it was abuse or malnutrition or whatever else he endured. How do you forgive that? How do you get past that? Well, Joseph could forgive his brothers 
because he believed in a big God. He saw the current of God's plan working out in his life, and he saw God's grace overcome his tragedy to where he says this to his brothers in verses 20 and 21. Do not fear, for I am the place of God. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Now, maybe you have suffered an injustice in your life. I think most of us somewhere along the way have. I've been recently reading a book by Dr. Gary Chapman called Anger. Uh, taming a powerful emotion. And in that book, Dr. Chapman validates anger. He, he talks to it as a, a natural response or emotional response that all of us experience. And he, he talks to why we experience anger. He says we feel anger when we see injustice. So whether it's injustice that's happened to someone else or injustice that's happened to us, the problem is, is what we do with the anger. Sometimes the anger manifests in explosive uh, words or venting to someone about someone else or a seed, a root of bitterness. We go internal and we, we just dwell on it. But when you can see the big picture, you can have a better response to anger. Chapman says the most productive way to deal with anger is, one, to learn how to forbear, which means that you hand over that situation to God. When you believe in a big God, you believe that God is directing all outcomes and he can handle that situation where you felt unjustly treated. Secondly, Chapman says that you can also choose to restore the relationship through loving confrontation. You see, when you think of the world in that way, that God's in control, you can do what Joseph does in this passage. Yeah, he forbears. He's not getting those 13 years back. But at the same time, because there is a big God that he believes in, he also knows that he can forgive his brothers. The brothers don't get this. They live in a world of retribution. But Joseph believes in the God of grace, and so he can engage in total forgiveness. Now, what is total forgiveness? It is the choice to no longer hold a person's crime or sinful decision against them. It's what God did for us in Jesus. God has chosen to forgive our sins in such a way that he will no longer bring them up to us. He will no longer seek retribution from us. One beautiful passage that describes this is Isaiah forty-four twenty-two. God says, I have swept away your sins like a cloud. I have scattered your offenses like the morning mist. Oh, return to me, for I have paid the price to set you free. Friend, that's grace. We don't deserve it. We didn't earn it. Yet God extends it. And when you have met the God of the Bible, when he intersects in your life in that way, he changes who you are too. Now, as we bring this all together, 
we see from Joseph's story of grace that Joseph could see the total picture, and that big picture freed him up to be able to forgive the unforgivable. And we all need to see the total picture sometimes. I like to think of it like this, you know, there's always more at work in the world than we can see. I'm reminded of that when I think about the rainbow. Now, as you know, rainbows are beautiful, multicolored arcs, which appear when sunlight hits water droplets. Now, it's interesting when you look at the rainbow that the arc that you're looking at isn't actually the total picture. Pilots know this. When pilots are soaring at tens of thousands of feet above the earth's surface, they can see the full picture. And the full picture is that the rainbow isn't an arc. A rainbow is circular. At that level, they see reality as it is. And that's what Joseph does in this passage. He's, he's soaring at an altitude far above his brothers. Essentially, he's saying to his brothers, I see the whole rainbow. I'm, I'm flying at the perspective of the world from God's gracious vantage, his outlook. I no longer view my hurt and pain from the ground level. I see things the way God sees it. Yes, you intended it for evil, but God meant it for good. Chuck Swindoll, remarking on Joseph, says, Joseph was led by grace. He spoke by grace. He forgave by grace. He forgot by grace. He loved by grace. He remembered by grace. Because of grace, when his brothers bowed before him in fear, he could say, get on your feet. God meant it all for good. So here's where we land the plane. The God in these stories of grace is the same God who you need to know. The same God who is extending grace to you. His grace can reinvent this little ice age that we're going through. It can reinvent the little ice ages that you've experienced. His grace is also operative in the sense that he can use it to change you. He is totally capable. He's totally capable of handling every detail of your life. The big question is, are you willing to let him? Will you let him direct the current of your life? And the only way you're going to do that is if you take a step back and you look at the total picture, seeing that God has a perfect outcome for your life. Can I pray for you? Heavenly Father, I pray over each one listening today, asking that they would see the total picture. Like Joseph, who you directed his life and created that beautiful outcome of grace to where he was even able to forgive his brothers, Lord. I pray for the one listening today that they would see you from that perspective, that they would fly at that altitude, that they would see your grace. Lord, we need your grace. To go one day without your grace is just unthinkable now that I've experienced it. I pray for each one here who is considering Jesus right now. That as they think of their life, as they think of their relationship with you, that they would see that Jesus is the only way. And that they would entrust themselves to him by faith. Praying for the church as well, asking that you would 
continue to keep us safe, healthy, that you would unite us together in the Spirit even while we are separated by distance. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.